As Pastor Greg said, my name is Chris, and uh, it's a joy to be able to open the Word with you this morning. If you would turn with me to Luke chapter 1, Luke chapter 1, and it's so good to see so many out-of-towners here for the holidays, um, and I know that we probably have some watching online, too. Welcome. Luke chapter 1, this is a famous Christmas text. Um, you're going to have to buckle in because I'm going to start in Luke 1, but then you're going to have to wait about two-thirds of the sermon to get back to it. So I hope that's okay. We will be doing Christmas things, though, today for any of you who are afraid that uh, I will neglect the, uh, the seasonal holiday. Luke chapter 1, verse 26 is where we'll start. Let's read through verse 37. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and he said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. The angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we look at this text together. God, as we anticipate your work uh, in our hearts this morning, I pray you would help us to come to you with soft hearts, that we'd be ready to listen to this word from you, this declaration that you are reliable. I pray that this Christmas season, it would be more than, the Christmas story would be more than just a story to us. It would be a marker, a landmark for us, a beacon that declares to us and to all around us that you are a God who speaks and keeps his word. And so as we look at this text, as we look at your words, help us to trust them and rest in them. We ask all this. In Christ's name, amen. Like I mentioned, we're going to kind of trace our way back to Luke chapter 1. And we're doing that in part because Luke chapter 1 is the culmination of a lot of different texts that kind of pull together with this thing that God says to Mary with her response to God about his word and letting it be according to her as God says. Now, it's not uncommon for all of us to ask the question, can God help me? Usually embedded in that question is not the question of God's ability, nor of his power. We're usually asking much more like this, can I trust the word of God towards me? Many of us, if we were to answer a question honestly, we would say, of course, God can do anything. The question is, will he do something, right? That's the question we're asking in those moments. It's a question then not about his power or his ability, but about his reliability specifically for us. Is God merely all-powerful, or is God also somebody you can rely on? God wants us, though, to trust him, and he wants us to trust him with reason. I want you to imagine 
with me this morning that you have some deep-seated secret in your heart. Maybe it's something you've really been battling over, or perhaps it's some special struggle or trial, and you, you go to the person you think, I can trust this person entirely. And you go to them, and you kind of just spill your heart before them in its rawest form, and they listen carefully. Maybe you have a friend like that. It's a special thing, isn't it? Now, if I were to pull you aside after that and say, you know, why did you go to them? You know what you wouldn't say? You wouldn't say this. Oh, I don't know. They just, just seem like it, right? What would you do? Well, you would point to their reliability. In part, the way they've responded to you in the past. I knew how they would respond to me when I said this because of thing, 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 right? And in that way, what you do is you honor that person by declaring that they are reliable. And you declare they're reliable by looking at their past statements to you, their past responses to you. God wants us, in the very same way, to trust him. Not with a blind faith that just says, I don't know, God just seems trustworthy, I guess I'll just trust him. But to say, you know what, the reason I can rely on God is because of this and this and this and this. Therefore, God is reliable. In other words, God wants our trust not to be blind. God wants our trust to be honoring. Our trust needs to say something about the character of God, the nature of God, not merely about the nature of our blind junk. Faith in the Bible always has that undercurrent to it, that undertow that says, God is trustworthy, therefore I trust him. God is not honored by blind jumps of faith. This morning, God wants to underscore in our hearts that he is the kind of God you can trust like that. Now, we're going to do this by looking at three different vignettes in the scripture, three different stories. God is very concerned that we trust his words, and by extension, that we trust him. These three stories, these three vignettes, all have this same question embedded in it. Can God keep his word? Is God reliable? Now, there are these kind of special phrases sometimes when you watch a, a movie or you read a book and you say, oh, there's that phrase again. They're underscoring something important, and in a way, that's what God is going to do here. Maybe for you kids among us, and maybe I just have too many girls in my house. I don't know if you remember the story of Aladdin. Do you remember the story of Aladdin and Jasmine? I know at least one is very into this right now, and I want you to remember that phrase where Aladdin reaches his hand out and he says, do you trust me? He does that first as Aladdin, and then, he, or, and then he does it later as the fake prince, right? Prince Ali. And the second time she says, wait a second, that's that same phrase. There's a sense in which that's kind of what God's doing here. He's using the same exact phrase, and he's really asking that question. Do you trust me? Do you trust me? Do you trust me? And it's the repetition of this phrase that underscores the importance of this to God. God is reliable. So if you would, turn with me, first of all, to Genesis 18. Genesis 18 is the first time this question is used. And in some ways, it's the basis for all the other times, including Luke chapter 1. Genesis chapter 18, we stumble upon an old couple. We find that Abraham is 99 years old and Sarah is 89. God has, I'm going to put it this way, he has increased the improbabilities. And this whole section I'm just calling a physical improbability. An improbability might be a little bit, almost too light of a word here. Here we have a very old man and a very old woman who are awaiting a promise of God to be fulfilled, a word of God to come to fruition. But God continues to just let these obstacles stack up year after year, not just to demonstrate his raw power, but to demonstrate something else, his reliability. Can God keep his word, especially when everything is stacked against him? Romans chapter 4 says this very bluntly. It simply says this, 
that Abraham's body was as good as dead. How would you like that to be the phrase said about you in the Bible? And that's the case with Abraham here. God has let this stack up. And yet he returns to a promise he said again and again. Some seven times likely God has already said this, depending on how you count. This is the seventh time God has repeated to them, I will do this. And so you see that this isn't just merely God saying, I'm powerful. It's God saying, I'm reliable, especially when it looks like I can't keep my word. You have passages like chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, I'll make of you a great nation, which embedded in it is this promise for a son. Chapter 13, verse 15, your offspring will inherit the land. Chapter 15, your own son will bring descendants. Chapter 15 again, to your offspring I will give this land. And then chapter 17, it says that by your own son, whose name is Isaac, I will do all these things. God has said in no uncertain terms, multiple times in a row, I'm promising you a son. But we've gotten to the point where it's, it's nearly an impossibility. Abraham is 99. Sarah is 89. But we find that here in this text, in chapter 18, that the speaker tells this same promise again. Verse 10, the Lord said, this is the pre-incarnate Christ, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Again, this isn't the first time they've heard this. This is a repeated promise that now has come up again for them. And they do what so many of us do when God's words to us, even if they're familiar, just seem like they can't happen. Too many times it feels like they fall into the ground, that they haven't come true, and it's almost harder to hope than it is to, to, to believe what God has said. Sarah, instead, who was listening at the door, we're told in verse 10, we find Sarah was listening at the door, and Abraham, verse 11, and Sarah were old, advanced in years, and the way of woman had ceased to be with Sarah, so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, this is verse 13, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Now in this moment, what she's doing is she's doubting the reliability of the spoken word of Christ himself here. And God confronts her for it. God confronts this dismissive laughter, and he does it with our question. Are you ready for the question that we're going to trace through this? Look at verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? That's the question. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Now, this is not something I typically do, but I think in this case it's actually very helpful. This phrase, anything, and too hard for the Lord, I want to look at both of those briefly. That word for anything is actually just the normal word in Hebrew for the word word. Is any word too hard for the Lord? In fact, if you want to learn it, it's not hard to say, and that way I don't have to say not the word, not the thing, the word, right? All right, the word is davar, all right? It's like a soft, uh, soft D, perhaps, or a hard D. Devar, this word or statement of God. By some count, some 87% of the time it's used in the Old Testament, it's translated word. It's the normal word for word. It's the word of the Lord, the statement, the message of God. So it's significant here that Sarah isn't laughing at something. She's laughing at a word, a word from God. We, we might say it like this if I look down again at verse uh, 14. Is any word too hard, too marvelous for the Lord? And some of you might have that in your own Bibles, too marvelous, too wonderful. It's a word that's tied to the word for wonder, something that's amazing, miraculous, something that couldn't happen. And this really is what God's saying. Am I reliable? Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is any word too wonderful for the Lord? Or we could say it in common vernacular like this. Is my word too good to be true? That's really what God is asking. Is my word too good to be true? And that is the, the current of this question that we're going to trace throughout the Bible. And God is asking this, am I reliable? 
are my words something that you can rest in, or are they too fanciful? Are they too marvelous? Are they too good to be true? Isn't that our question? That's the kind of thing we ask of God. We usually don't question God's power. God can do anything, we would say. Or his ability. Of course, God can do anything he wants to, but what's the question? Will he, right? It's this reliability. That's what we're asking. Perhaps for you, you look at your own life and you realize, I don't think God can rescue somebody like me. Well, what are you asking in that moment? What are you saying in that moment? You're saying, not is God not powerful enough, but would he do it for me? Maybe you look at others and say, well, God would do it for them and for them and for them, and of course God can do anything, but would God do it for me? You're asking the same question, is any word of God to you too marvelous, too wonderful, too good to be true? Perhaps you are a child or a teenager or an adult, and night after night, you sit in your bed and you wonder this question, can God, did God actually save me? So again, for the hundredth or two hundredth or three hundredth or four thousandth time, you cry out to God, God, if I'm not a Christian, make me a Christian. God, I believe. I repent of my sin. God, I want salvation. And you go to bed with this question on your mind. Will God do that? Or is it too wonderful? Is it too marvelous? Is it too good to be true? Yes, he'll do it for others, but would he do it for me? Perhaps you look at promises like Jesus makes that those of you who have to abandon family, you'll be repaid a hundredfold. And yet during this time of year, you look around and you realize that all of your relationships with your family members are starting to crumble. And you start to ask, is that too good to be true? God says he'll restore these things to me a hundredfold, but I look around and I see just broken relationships. The question is the same question on Sarah's mind, on Abraham's mind. Are God's statements to us too good to believe? Are they too good to be true? This physical improbability is the first kind of statement of God in this question. Let's turn now to Jeremiah 32, where this statement comes up again. And I apologize, I don't have the page in the, the Blue Pew Bible. It's, a, you know, about 60% through your Bible, something like that. Jeremiah chapter 32. This is a crucial passage for promises God is going to make and then fulfill in the New Testament. We move now to this geopolitical improbability, where this question comes up again, not once, but twice. God underscores his reliability here with this geop geopolitical improbability. Now, what is it about this situation that causes this question to be brought up? Can God be believed to be reliable? Is God reliable? Well, first of all, we find the, the passage opens with this declaration that there is exile coming. In this history of the nation, they are, they've been bombarded with all kinds of enemies here and there, and God is saying judgment is now coming, and you're going to be carted off to another land. In fact, this is likely written one year before that happens. This is likely written in 587 B.C., just one year before the exile. And the chapter itself actually opens with Jeremiah being thrown into prison because he says God's going to do this, and the king doesn't like it. Look down at verse 2 of chapter 32. At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem at that very moment when this text is being written. Jeremiah the prophet was shut up in the court of the guard that was in the palace of the king of Judah, for Zedekiah, king of Judah, had imprisoned him saying, Why do you prophesy and say things like this? Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am giving the city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he shall capture it. Zedekiah didn't like this message, and so he sends uh, Jeremiah into prison. 
says you're going to be kept here under lock and key because I don't like the word that God has given you. God has also promised something else, though. He's promised the certain return of Judah. He says, you're going to go away, and I will bring you back. Now, look down with me at verse 6. God has done this in a way that's not just verbally, but he's done it even with some words. He's actually underscored this truth with illustrations, and God loves to illustrate this. He's done this by telling Jeremiah to go buy a field inside of Jerusalem. Now, imagine this. You figure out that destruction is coming. There's an army surrounding your entire city, and you go out and decide to purchase some property when it looks like you're just going to be destroyed. Now, I don't know, maybe some of you are like, I'm an investor, and that's the time, right? I don't know, but I think most of us are like, maybe let's wait and see how this all shakes out, right? I'm not sure the Babylonians are going to honor these field agreements. And yet, this is exactly what God tells Jeremiah to do, and what it is is it's an illustration publicly to everyone God is going to bring us back. I'm so certain of it. I'm so sure of it. God is so reliable that I'm going to go buy property because one day I'll be able to live on it. So he says, do exactly this. The word of the Lord came to him in verse 6. And he tells him to go and go to a relative and buy a field that is at Anathoth. Then he does this in a very public way. Look at verse 8. His cousin comes to him in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord. He said to me, buy the field. I knew this was the word of the Lord because this is what happens, he says at the end of verse 8. So I bought the field, verse 9, Anathoth, from my cousin, and I weighed out the money to him, 17 shekels of silver. Now, listen to the publicity of this. I signed the deed. I sealed it. I got witnesses. I weighed the money on scales. Then I took the sealed deed of purchase containing the terms, conditions, and the open copy, and I gave them um, the deed uh, of purchase to Baruch, the son of uh, Nerari, son of Messiah, in the presence of Hanamiah, my cousin in the presence of the witnesses who signed the deed of purchase, in the presence of all the Judeans who were sitting in the court of the guard, I charged him, Baruch, this this scribe, in their presence, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, take these deeds, both the sealed deed of purchase and this open deed, and put them in an earthenware vessel, that they may last for a long time. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, houses and fields and vineyards shall again be bought in this land. You can see the publicity of this, right? He just storms into this kind of open court and says, God says this is going to happen. You store this up because I'm going to come back and this will be my property. So God has made these kind of miraculous promises. You're going to be driven away and I will bring you back. And he's underscored this with this illustration of what Jeremiah is doing. And notice what happens next. Because Jeremiah turns from this kind of public statement of the fact that God will do what he says to start to underscore it with this exact same question, the same statement, these same exact words. And he does it, first of all, in a prayer. Look with me at verse 16. After I'd given the deed of purchase to Baruch, he says, I prayed to the Lord, saying, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and your outstretched arm. No, here's the word, word is too hard, too wonderful for you. You see what he's doing is he's calling to mind this story in their collective history. And he's saying this, just like you did something impossible for Abraham and Sarah, you will also keep your word here. Right now, with the attack happening outside that all of us can hear, it seems impossible, God. It seems improbable at best, but you are a God who speaks, fulfills your word. Now, this whole text really is about the word of God, and God is going to underscore the reliability of his word just by the way he talks. Verse 1, he talks about the word of the Lord coming to Jeremiah. Verse 6, Jeremiah confirms this. The word of the Lord came to me. Verse 8, I knew this was the word of the Lord. We read that. Then here in verse 17, he says, no word is too hard for you. 
Oh, here's what's interesting about this same question, is any word too wonderful for me? Jeremiah is the first one who states this, and he's just done that, right, in his prayer to everyone. And he doesn't do it as a question, he does it as a statement. No word is too wonderful for God. No statement of God towards me is too good to be true. So he's trying to convince the people around him to believe in the word of God. And then he starts to recount the history of how God has been trustworthy, how God has shown himself to be trustworthy. It's, it's like the opening illustration. He actually underscores and honors God in his faith. He's not saying we should blindly jump and trust God. He's saying, and isn't this how God acts? We find in like verse 20, he says, you would deliver us. You said you'd deliver us from Egypt, and that's exactly what you did, and you did it with wonders, the same word, too wonderful. This is how you did it. Verse 22, he says, you said you would give us this land, and you did. Verse 24, he said, you said the Chaldeans would come, and they did. They're here. We can hear them outside the walls right now. Jeremiah then does something really significant for us. Jeremiah weighs his current reality against God's past reliability. Jeremiah weighs his current reality against God's previous, his, his prior, his, his history of being reliable. And by doing this in the presence of all these people, what he's saying is this. God is reliable. He's shown himself to be so. Let's trust the word of the Lord. And that's what we have to do to our own hearts, isn't it? You see how what God doesn't want us to do is to blindly jump, to shut our eyes and then just say, well, I guess I'll just believe God. No, what he wants us to do is to trace his footsteps and find that every one of them fell exactly where he said they would. God wants us to weigh our current realities against his past reliability. Now, God actually confirms the statement of Jeremiah by asking the question. And this is the second time it's brought up in this text. If you look down at verse 30. Uh, let's see, verse 36, I think it is. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the city of which you say it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon, by sword, by famine, by, by pestilence. Behold, I will gather them all from the countries to which I drove them in my anger and in my wrath and in my indignation. I will bring them back to this place, and I will make them dwell in safely, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God. He's recounting then these kinds of promises to them. This is all on the heels of verse 27, where the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah again, the same phrase. And God says this, Behold, I am the Lord, the God of flesh. Is anything, is any word too hard for me? Jeremiah first underscores God's reliability, and then God places his own stamp of approval on it. Now, this is exactly the way the Bible talks about this exact historical event. We have passages like Zechariah chapter 8, verses 4 through 8. For God himself says, it might be marvelous in your eyes, but it's not marvelous in my eyes, because I spoke it and it happened. And in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, when they returned to the land, it said that the Lord stirred up the king of Persia, and all this happened, so that the word of the Lord, by the mouth of Jeremiah, might be fulfilled, just as God said it. I don't know about you, but when you hear things like this and you say, okay, I, God needs, I need to think about God as reliable, our gut instinct, I think, as modern Americans is to say this, I just need more faith, right? Isn't that a, a gut instinct? I just need more faith. But there's a sense in which that actually puts the emphasis on the wrong person here. What we often mean by that is I need to kind of have this subjective feeling that I can trust God more, and I need to do that, but that's not what God is saying. God isn't saying to look inside yourself and to ask the question, can I drum up enough emotional intensity to place my rest and trust in God. That's not what God is saying. 
God instead is saying, don't look at yourself, look at me. Ask the question, is God reliable? That's the question. So let me encourage you to look to the person and not to yourself. I want you to imagine if uh, I had a friend call me up, and I'll use this example because it's so ridiculous. And they said, you know, how do you feel like Fellowship Bible Church has cared for your family? Okay, now, spoiler alert, very well, all right? <laughs> That's why this is a safe example. But let's say, for instance, I didn't feel that way, or I said I didn't. I said, I don't know, I just, I'm just not sure I can trust them. What would they ask? Why, right? Why can't you trust them? What, what have they done to show you that? I said, well, nothing really. I mean, I guess they've only supported us, and they built an entire house last year for us, and, and they start listing off all these things, and they say, so what's the problem here? And I say, I just don't know. I just don't have this feeling inside. You know, what the counselor would say in that moment is not, you need more faith, right? What would the counselor say to me in that moment? Open your eyes. Look at what they've done. Your, your lack of faith, your doubt is baseless. It's a blind leap. Everything in your experience tells you something different. You don't have a reason to doubt it. In the same way, that's what God's saying. He's not saying you need to drum up more faith. He's saying, look at what I've done. By putting emphasis on ourselves, we've actually flipped the narrative. God doesn't say, shut your eyes and jump. God says, point to one time where a word of mine fell to the ground. The strength of faith, we might say like this, is not your emotions and it's not your experience. The strength of faith is the object in which you place trust in. The question is this, is God a safe object for your faith? That's the question, because here's the thing. If he is, he is, right? Whether you experience that or feel that at all. The thing you put your faith and trust in is not trustworthy. It doesn't matter how sincere you are. It's false faith. It will fall to the ground. The strength of your faith is not your emotions or your experience, but the object in which you place your trust. And what God is saying with this question is, I am someone you can trust. I am someone you can trust. So if you feel the need for more faith, let me encourage you to not look within yourself, but to ask the question God is asking. Am I reliable? And if he is, then to rest in that. Now, as promised, we return to Luke chapter 1. I told you this was a Christmas message. Luke chapter 1, if you turn there with me. But I think you'll see the significance like a oft-repeated phrase in a movie that finally has the kind of the final culmination as it you feel the full gut punch of what it means now, seeing all this history behind this text. When God uses this phrase, it's now lost on Mary. Her whole song after this basically declares this exact thing about God. God, you're trustworthy. And it's because God brings up this question. As we read, God sends Gabriel with this message for Mary. And the weightiness of the message is significant. Now, this is, if, if you don't know, the Old Testament was written mostly in Hebrew. The New Testament was written mostly in Greek. So it's a different word, but it's the word that translates it if you were to translate between Hebrew and Greek. There's a common word for word in Greek. It's logos. Maybe you know that. There's a less common word called rhema, which means the statements, specific statements. And that's the word that's used here, these statements of God. Now, this word is used some 70 times in the New Testament. 66 of them are translated as word or statement. Four of them are translated as thing, and they're all in Luke 1 and 2, and I don't think they should be, but we'll get to that in a moment. We're now past improbabilities. We've moved on to full impossibilities. 
Mary is a virgin. And this message from Gabriel brings out a question that wasn't first thought of by some 21st century skeptic. It was thought of by Mary herself. She says, this can't be. I'm a virgin. What we find then is an explanation, first of all, about the means that God is going to use, but then more importantly, about God's reliability. Look with me at verse 35. When she asks the, the obvious question, God, this is impossible, physically impossible. This cannot happen. She's first told how God will do it. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. This is how he'll keep his word, the means he will use. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child will be, to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. But secondly, he reminds her of an old woman who has been long barren, who now is about to give birth. Can you already hear Genesis in this? Your barren relative will conceive in her old age. She already has. Verse 36, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren for, here's the question, here's the statement now, for no rhema, no statement of God will be too marvelous, too wonderful, too good to be true. This is what God is doing. He's calling to mind these pivotal moments in the history of the Old Testament. To Mary's heart, to Mary's mind, to our hearts, to our minds, to underscore this, God can do whatever he says. Let me say that stronger. God will do whatever he says. Nothing is too marvelous for God. Nothing is too wonderful for God. And just to underscore that he is talking about the words he has said to her, the statements he has said to her, I want you to look at with, with me briefly at those four times where this word rhema is translated as things. And I think you'll see that he's talking about statements. Look at chapter 1, verse 65. We've already looked at, at uh, one of them. These are the other four. This is when everyone hears of John the Baptist. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What will this child be? For the hand of the Lord will be with him. Heard them, that is the word statements, these statements, these things. Some translations translate that as things. Verse chapter two, verse fifteen. The angels have said all these things, and the angel and the shepherds say to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, this word that has happened, the statement that was told us, let's go see it. That's what they're saying. Chapter 2, verse 19. Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. What things is she putting in her heart? The words spoken to her about this son. Or if you look at the end of chapter 2, verse 51, the same exact phrase is used. We find that Mary, his mother, treasured up all these things, these statements from Anna and Simeon about her son in her heart. So in chapter 1, when God says this thing, what he's saying is this word for me. No word is too impossible, too marvelous for me. And Mary picks up on it. Notice what she says to him in response. Verse 38. She says, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your, what does she say? To your word. Let your word be true. I believe it. I rest in your word. I trust in your word. It's limited comfort to know only that God is powerful, or even only that he is good. The comfort comes when we are convinced that he is reliable, that the things God has said will happen. This is the message, in many ways, of Christmas. This is the message of the Christmas story. First given to Abraham and Sarah, then given in the new covenant to Jeremiah, and then given to Mary here in Luke 1. 
And the message is simply this. No statement from God is too good to be true. Everything God says will happen. Let me encourage you now with a few closing applications as we draw our attention to closing here this morning. First of all, God protects his word because it is his trustworthiness. God is adamant. Like in Psalm 138, verse 2, he says, You've exalted above all things your name, your character, your reputation, and your word. God protects his word. God protects his word in history. God protects his word even in our own thinking. When he talks about his word, he, he speaks about it like this, like something that will always happen every single time without exception. When God speaks, it will occur. Secondly, God's reliability is on display in the impossibility of Christmas. This Christmas celebration really is the celebration about Mary's question, how can these things be? The answer, because God's reliable. That's what Christmas is about. It's, it's a statement about God's reliability, even in the impossible, that if God speaks a word to you, it will happen to the letter. So like Jeremiah, rehearse God's reliability in the past to you. Recount how God has been reliable. Whether that's in the past to you or perhaps even just in the Christmas story. And here, let me encourage you. If you say, you know what, I, we're never quite sure what to do spiritually with Christmas. I mean, our kids just want to rip into the gifts, right? Let me encourage you, dads, moms. Can I encourage you with a little bit of homework this Christmas? Would you take a few moments and recount with your children God's reliability, his trustworthiness, where he spoke one thing and that happened. First of all, in the Christmas story, all the promises God made, they came true. And your children can pick up on those things. If you want to take it one extra step, if you want extra credit in a class that doesn't count, all right, then I'd encourage you to do the same thing in your own family. How has God been faithful like that to us? How has God shown his trustworthiness to us, his reliability to us? In many ways, Christmas is this beacon that shines up so you can see wherever you look that God is reliable. God is reliable even in the impossible. Finally and thirdly, let me encourage you to bring your doubts about God to his word. There is no shame and doubt. There is no shame and doubt if you bring those doubts to God. And God wants you to. And what he wants to show you is that he is trustworthy. So what are the promises God has made to you? And that, that's an important question. What are the promises God has made to you? In other words, we would not do well to take like the promise to, to uh, Sarah and say, well, because God promised Sarah a child, now he's promised us a child. Right? That would be a, a, an incorrect assumption. So it's important that God's spoken these words to you, but what words has God spoken to you? God has spoken that if you come to him and you repent of your sin and believe only in Christ, that he will save you. That is a certain word from the Lord. If you confess with your heart, you will be saved. God has promised that he'll preserve you all the way to the end if you're a Christian. He will keep you in spite of your failings, Ephesians 1, Romans 8, Romans 5 tells us. How can you be confident that God will forgive you when you come back again? Well, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 says, I will forgive you. Why? On what basis? He says, because I'm faithful. I'm trustworthy. What statements, what promises has God made to you? It may be that your tendency was like Sarah's, to laugh at the word of God. If that's the case, then perhaps today you've heard in this word a rebuke to you your dismissiveness of God's statements to you should cause you to pull back and say, you know what? I shouldn't respond to God's word like that. 
Because Christmas does declare this, no word of God for you is too good to be true. So don't marvel when it comes true, but believe. Pray that this Christmas season would be a season of us declaring this to each other and to God. God, you are reliable. Every word you speak will come true. Let's pray and ask for God's help to do that today. God, this question, this statement is one that all of us have had on our minds over and over again through life. God, can we trust you? Are you reliable? It really is the most intimate of questions. So I pray you would help us as we face this Christmas season and whatever pains or heartaches that we might be facing to be convinced of this, that you are a God that when you speak, it comes true. And so help us to this season point to your reliability and in so doing, have faith that honors you. Have faith that honors your character. We ask this all in Christ's name.